Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Join me this evening. We welcome back our friend once again, uh, PC Gamers tabletop gaming correspondent, John Balding. Howdy, howdy. And we also welcome uh, game developer and critic and maybe monster, uh, Zolivir Nelson. Hello, everyone. Uh, so... The reason I mentioned that Zolivir might be a monster is because we are we are talking about a city management survival game that kind of maybe prods you in the direction of turning into uh, arguably a monster or maybe just somebody who puts humanity aside and looks at the bottom line. Uh, we're talking about 11-bit studios Frostpunk, uh, a sort of post-apocalyptic Ice Age uh, city, city survival game. And... Uh, Zolivir, I, I wanted to start with we, with you because your review in Rock Paper Shotgun was particularly striking, uh, but also engaged with a lot of the really like brutal and harsh trade offs that sort of define Frostpunk. Do you want to set the stage for us a little bit as to what Frostpunk is, what the setup is, and what the like day to day management looks like before you start getting to the to the real crunch time decisions? Sure. Uh, the best way I'd sum up Frostpunk is that uh, everything is a crunch time decision. And it's brilliant in that respect because usually, uh, I'll be up front, I'm not really a city builder type. I get about five, ten hours into a city and then I realize, oh god, no one has plumbing and electricity is borked. And oh gosh, are people homeless? Have they just been walking around this entire time? And I just see these a thousand little issues uh, piling up, and I decide I'm going to do better next time, and I don't do better next time. But Frostpunk, its entire shtick is that it's this uh, steampunk survival game where all of your issues can be summed up and uh, blamed against a single enemy, which is the cold. Uh, London has fallen. Uh, the main story uh, scenario, the first one you start with, uh, you start New London, and the cold is coming. And everything that you face from that starting position um, has to do with the cold. So when you look at people not having jobs or people not having enough to eat or people not having um, housing or whatever else, instead of those 2,000 tiny issues tearing at your mind and going like, I'm going to start again, because it's set within this survival context – uh, suddenly, you're not fighting a thousand issues, you're fighting one giant enemy, which is the environment. So uh, it, within the steampunk setting, you are uh, it's very much of a, a city builder. It's kind of tabletop inspired in its design. You uh, manage your generator, you take care of the needs of your citizens, and all the while, the cold is increasing, it's getting worse. And you're constantly put into positions where you think that you finally have a handle on things and the game knocks your feet out from under you and challenges you to continue going. Uh, And in that respect, it's a really engrossing survival city building experience, uh, one that manages to be quite cinematic and how it interacts with you on a systemic level as well, Um, even if you aren't someone who typically plays that kind of game. Yeah, and just one thing I, I should uh, make clear so you can sort of visualize it in your head. Uh, literally, the entire that, that generator we're referring to is at the center of every map. Like, kind of the conceit of this game is 
uh, in the mysterious cold that has wiped out civilization and basically encased the world in like sheets of ice and snow, uh, all that is left are these little communities huddled against these giant uh, steampunk ass like Victorian like uh, they're, they're generators. They're they're kind of MacGuffins. Like they generate power and and heat. But the main thing is people are like basically curling up around heavy industry to stay warm and uh and, and survive this this apocalypse um john you mentioned you know and you, you mentioned you were kind of eager to talk about this game at least when it when it came out uh i'm, I'm curious what what you made of Frostbunk and uh you know what resonated with you here yeah well okay i'm kind of a soft touch um i will respond to melodrama pretty effectively right so the game made me feel bad a lot about the decisions that had to be made. Um, and I felt, you know, sort of genuinely emotionally compelled by a lot of the moments in the game, at least at first, as I played it, um, the things like the, it, the little things would, would get to me. That's where I felt the writing was often stronger. Um, things like, uh, a single person approaches you and says, my daughter wandered off into the snow and I haven't seen her all day. I want to take a sled and some food and go find her. Um, and you send that guy off and you're like, maybe, maybe that guy comes back. Maybe not. Um, and then a week later he shows back up with his kid and you're like, fucking great. I'm, you know, you're overjoyed that one guy has survived. Meanwhile, you know, three other people have uh, frozen to death in the mines, but you know, let's not talk about that part. Um, it's, uh, it's very much a, it's a survival city game, which is sort of, automatically going to interest me and it has a narrative twist and that narrative twist that really heavy use of story elements in the moment to moment play of the game is what appeals to me so heavily and what i think makes it a really interesting and unique game in the genre now this is like once you start playing it the the lineage is obvious uh but did you both play uh loving this previous game uh this war of mine Yes. Yeah. I did as well. Yeah. Like, I think my initial expectation uh, for this was going to be where this war of mine was this really experiential, like, like almost a role playing experience with like a heavy layer of survival resource management. I was like, this is going to be a much more systems driven, uh, like management game maybe with a little more atmosphere layered on top. Um, and I actually think that ends up being a little bit superficial. I think this is in many ways, uh, almost to me, it, it still felt incredibly deterministic, uh, like in the ways that this war of mine was kind of deterministic where, I was seeing the same things happen again and again. Like what, what the the curveballs that were being thrown at me were being, you know, they were they were coming out of a limited deck of events and, and things that can happen, and they sort of followed a predictable arc. And for me, at least, like I'm going to sound like I'm dragging this game, and I'm, I'm really not, but like. I think city city builders in general, there's an expectation that they are like very open ended, endlessly replayable uh, experiences. The you know uh, Zalbier, the the whole like you know you restart once you see something is wrong, you try to reoptimize and, and try again. 
I think Frostpunk really is like a linear story with a city manager being your your vessel for seeing that story. But for me, at least, it very much felt like as I was playing these scenarios, I was learning the steps to a dance that wouldn't change that much. And, I, and I'm curious whether y'all felt differently. I absolutely don't mind dragging this game, which is why I'm going to praise it a lot in these <laughs> early stages. Uh, in terms of being a city builder, I think you hit the nail right on the head when you said, yes, there are these events and curveballs happening, but they're all coming out of the linear deck, which is why I'd almost recommend playing this once, uh, almost as if you would a, a Telltale game. Go as far as you can. Try to survive from that first playthrough because believing that this next curveball is going to be your last and that it is totally unique and treating it in that regard as this linear story experience of your society and you're sticking it out, uh, you'll get a lot more from this game than uh, the alternative, which is the traditional city builder approach of here's a scenario, here's a thousand different ways you can play it, and the magic is in all of those different ways as opposed to Frog Punk, which is the very fact that you are alive on day four is a miracle. Keep going. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That That's how I feel about this game as well. It's not a game about strategic and uh, tactical variety and lots of different choices. And there's a million different ways you could play any given scenario. There's like two or three viable strategies inside that tech tree. Um, it's much more of the compelling experience of dragging yourself through by the edge of your fingernails, you know, barely making it, um, having your own little unique story, even though the truth is that everyone's having a very similar story as they're playing it. I think it does do a great job of selling the, that vibe of, of dragging yourself through this, through this nightmare though. Like something that 11 bit have always been good at is like presentation and production values. And that's really, shown off here to to really great advantage like there are so many little things you know there's the <laughs> there's the almost oppressively uh melancholy uh maybe even ponderous musical score that just like weighs down every single day uh but then there's just little touches like i love that the snow piles up overnight and as work crews fan out from the center of the settlement outside the sort of warm radius around the generator where things are like melted to slush and, and there's like duck boards between the buildings. People are like trudging off through the snow drifts or like the hunting teams leaving at night through the like stands of trees, carrying their torches. Like this game looks great. Like if, if selling that experience, that mood is something it really succeeds at. And it mechanically integrates a lot of that stuff too. the, the people trudging through snow genuinely move slower. Like the once the first guy clears a path, the people behind them move faster. Little tiny touches like that in this game are great. The context truly is magical because, as you mentioned, uh, when that first guy clears the snow ahead of him, everybody else can walk behind him. In a normal city builder, when you build a street, that's just busy work. That's maintenance. That's uh, that's mandatory. But in here, when you build a street and you can see people just walking along that street to get to work and they don't have to trudge through the snow, it feels monumentous because that street also took valuable wood, which you won't be able to turn into coal. So, you know, some of those people walking to work 
won't have heat for their homes at night. And you hope <laughs> they enjoy that walk because it might be the last one they have. Yeah, there's so the resource management thing is gets increasingly tricky and demanding. And I should warn you up front, we're going to be spoiling some things. And I think one of maybe the issues with Frostpunk is there's a few things that happen in the late game in these scenarios that once you know they're coming, kind of changes your approach to the game. Like, I had a really wonderful, naive experience. And if you want that naive experience, uh, I highly recommend you turn off now, go try out Frostpunk, because some things are really going to come out of nowhere and catch you by surprise, and it's going to be really cool. And I think you'll have kind of the cool experiences that, uh, you know, Zolivir wrote about. uh, Or, well, I had a... I also had a really special first game, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, but I, also, you know, a weakness of this game is once you do know the real game that is being played, once you know the challenges that each scenario is going to set before you, it changes your approach to the game and kind of gives away the underlying dynamics of of the strategy side. Um, so... Again, like just a courtesy warning here, like we're going to be getting into some late game stuff as we discuss this. And there's a lot to be said for if you're curious about this game, playing it without knowing too much about the late game. Uh, but anyway, getting into the like systems and mechanics, um, you know, Zolivir, you're talking about wood and, you know, each road con- con- like consisting of uh, valuable wood. The there are actually a lot of things that need to be balanced in Frostpunk. You have a workforce uh, that ha- only has so many sets of hands available to it, and every work site and every building, production building, requires workers to staff. And the the main resources you are juggling are coal to power the generator and any other heating implement, and wood generally for buildings, and then iron, which is good for advanced buildings and uh, also for, for a, lot of, a lot of research stuff. And so those are the things you're, you're kind of balancing, but they can also feed into each other. For instance, you can make the choice to, if you're, if you're having like a coal crunch, for instance, you can start dipping into your wood supply, and if you've got a charcoal burner up and running, uh, you can start turning wood into charcoal and there's a lot of little trade-offs that you can do like that in this game to sort of uh stretch resources to turn things into other things uh that same logic i would also argue applies to your workforce you can consume people uh in a way in this game based on how you employ them how hard you work that work them and even what conditions you leave them working under yeah, absolutely. The part where I started to feel a little bad was definitely the parts of the game where I realized under under intense pressure, which we'll, I think we'll probably get to the late game in a little bit, um, the parts of the game where I was making decisions like some people are just going to die in the coal mines in the next week, and that's how it's going to have to be. I think there's also something to be said about the way viewing people as a nameless, faceless workforce really does change the way you relate to your society. 
because as I mentioned in my rock paper shotgun review, I had been te- I had been in a really tight crunch. I was uh, moving through the tech tree, wallowing in a constant uh, a temptation to just quit out and min-max like I had done in previous city builders. And I suddenly took the plunge and chose to do the, uh, to uh, activate the law that would allow me to draft children into my workforce. And when I did that, suddenly in the bottom right corner of my screen, there was like 84 tiny little hands now ready to work. And that blew my mind and it kind of starts to illustrate where the narrative portion of Frostpunk uh, really began to fall flat for me. Because up till that point, I was managing a society. Ostensibly, I was supposed to care about the people in the society. I didn't realize there were 84 children there. I didn't know who their parents were. I didn't know uh, what their relations were with each other. It's just there were 84 mouths in my colony that I had no idea how to process because the game had trained me to only see things in terms of inputs and outputs. Uh, And it had never really fleshed out the citizens of the world uh, to give me a reason to care about them aside from certain bespoke situations like John mentioned where there'll be a guy saying, hey, my daughter's out there in the cold. Can I go after her? Um, I looked at these 84 little hands and I was like, okay, uh, you get to go to the hot house. You go to the coal gathering post and you go cook. And the game, I won't get too much into it now, but like when the game does sort of bring those questions back in your face, because up to that point, it's just an inefficient workflow that didn't allow you to use that resource before. Uh, it really is hard to take responsibility for an action and say, oh man, I did do a bad thing. Because you know what? There are 84 very bored children in the snow, and they got some amazing work opportunities. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it's, it's funny to get to say this, um, and I, I feel like maybe I've been waiting my entire games commentary career to say it, but child labor is kind of overpowered. Um, it's just really good. Uh, and I say that coming from a point where I've beaten a couple of the scenarios. And in my first playthrough, I had a, I had the exact same yet opposite experience to what you had, um, where I chose the opposite direction. I was like, no, that's, that's kind of wrong. We're not going to put children to work. Um, so I had the point where I passed the opposite law, which is we're going to build little schools. We're going to build little shelters for children during the day so they don't bother their parents while they're at work. And did the children and thank you? They, no. <laughs> they did not, sir, uh, which is why I chose child labor the second time through. Um, but the that first time, I suddenly realized, holy shit, you know, there's 90 children wandering around and they need somewhere to live. Right. Um, They need somewhere to be during the day. They've been just screwing around. Uh, And then I had to dedicate a bunch of resources to building these sort of little promised like schools and stuff. And that uh, was like a real moment of connection for me where I was like, oh, my God, I've been a horrible person. I've not been taking care of these children. Um, I've just been looking at that little number in the bottom right corner like, yeah, okay, whatever. There's 40 children. Nobody cares. It's interesting to me 
Because once I saw the child labor law in that decision tree, so there's a code of laws button that you can pop open, and there's like all these little decision trees uh, you can go down. So like you can pass uh, some of my favorite laws, uh, emergency shifts, where you just turn a production building into 24/7 output for uh, like one day basically. You 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 run a night shift, uh, or you do extended shifts where instead of showing up at eight and clocking out at I think six you can push people from like 6 a.m. till 8 p.m. And all these things do tend to have impacts on two ratings, hope and discontent. And if hope falls too low, uh, you're in trouble. If discontent rises too high, you are also in trouble. Both of those things uh, can produce a fail state. And for me, like knowing that child labor was an option, I, uh, I realized what those little prohibited workers I think meant in the uh, in your workforce tab when you can when you can check on it, and so for me the children like didn't remain an abstraction, and I also felt and this is the interesting thing to me. This is one of those cases, and I'm usually not this kind of player. Usually, if a game wants me to feel something, if it wants me to wrestle with something, it needs to earn that. Like this is my constant complaint about a game like. Uh, you know, Stellaris, for instance, where you can tell me like that the, there's all this amazing, uh, you know, fiction happening in the backdrop of the universe. But if that isn't sort of mechanically alive to me, if if that isn't something I actually have to deal with as a player, then to me it almost doesn't count. Like I just it, I don't get into it. Um, with Frostpunk, for whatever reason, maybe it's just because they do such a good job of selling that theme. I did end up playing as if like, oh shit, there's a bunch of little kids running around this, this colony. I must, I must protect the children and I'm going to build the child shelters and that's going to give people hope uh, for the future, much as our ceremonial funerals uh, give people hope for their civilization, that they're preserving some of their humanity. And we aren't just like, sending kids off to the mines or dumping corpses in like snowdrifts to be preserved for maybe organ donation down the road. Uh, it gets pretty Frankenstein on some of these, uh, de- <laughs> some of these decision trees. So in a weird, like for whatever reason, I ended up buying in to a lot of these dilemmas the game puts before you that if you're just going to be very, bottom line oriented maybe don't resonate as much because like kids are just extra hands they're just extra workforce it's not like there's you don't feel the presence of those kids in the game and later the game does even like have kids converted into a workforce resource anyway because you can have them like intern at the engineering shops or intern at the uh the medical centers so it's it's a weird thing uh because for whatever reason I ended up just sort of self-imposing these rules to my play in this game where I was just like, eh, I'm not going to do the child labor thing. And this, and this does actually remind me of, of this war of mine. I played this war of mine very similarly where I did just for whatever reason buy into these decisions. And I was like, yeah, good point. Like I do need to think about how hopeful this society is that I'm, that I'm building. And even though the decisions are all very like, calculating and kind of cold-blooded um i did take the invitation to layer on 
this sort of moral cho- choice element that the game doesn't necessarily systemically support outside of the law tracks, which we'll get to. And and this is a really good point because you talked about the that self-imposition, right? Usually I play as a pure Paragon player if I can swing it. Uh, when I get into a game like this, when I played this War of Mine, Parsh, I played as a good guy partially so that I could feel bad. I want to feel terrible all the time if I'm doing selfish acts. And within the context of this War of Mine, as you mentioned, it's very experiential. So when I did, when I robbed an old lady and her husband of food for my own colony, it was like me versus them. I was placing myself above their own survival. And that really hit me. I couldn't finish this war of mine, even after trying it several times, because I did often find myself making horrible, horrible decisions uh, in order to survive and really regretting them. But within the context of Frostpunk, because these children are interchangeable, it is an 84 Jims and Janes and, and Jimmies. It's like 84 kits represented by a number, interchangeable, whatever you want to do with them. I that 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 same impulse, that same empathy I wanted to feel, and that the game very explicitly, the further you go in, go in wants you to feel, the, the guilt it wants you to feel, it didn't land for me because uh Again, as soon as that abstraction happened, up from the experiential, up from the personal, up from names and personalities and faces to numbers, suddenly I didn't have a really a reason to connect with the populace anymore. And there's a lot that can be said there as a metaphor for how governments work and how they can tend to depersonalize issues and how weird stuff can happen as a result. But for me, as just a lowly player of a game... I came in here. Uh, I came in expecting to see that child labor law and to never choose it. And when I eventually did choose it, I I expected that moment to hit where I was like, "Oh God, I have fallen and failed in terms of guiding the society." And I clicked the button, and nothing happened. <laughs> and you felt nothing. I felt nothing, and. I didn't feel like a monster. I felt like the game had put me into a position where being a monster was natural. Yeah. And in fact, selfless by virtue of other people it saved. Yes. I feel it, like it, I'm it, a, if, sorry, go on. Absolutely. If, if you want to get a different read on this, this could be, in fact, a perfect simulation of, like, mustache-twirling villain simulator. Because within that context, the mustache-twirling villain thinks he's the hero. He just killed off half of the society so that the other half could live. Well, I mean, there's half, there's pe- has half people living, and they all have food, and they all have shelter, and they all have heat. Uh, within that context, you are still the hero. So to right. later have the game tell you that was a bad thing you did. I just I'm just pointing at like 200 Londoners who are happy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that may be what got me about this game in the end was when I sat down and I really looked back at playing it. Um, 
it's possible that the stakes are just too high for me to care about the people that died along the way that much because at the level of the game we're talking about right when i'm playing a game like a similar sort of colony survival type games uh, like Dwarf Fortress or RimWorld, um, I have far fewer people to care about, right? Like, uh, generally, in RimWorld, it's like, you know, 15 or 20. In something like Dwarf Fortress, it's like 100 or less. I can I can sort of keep track of who they are and what they do a little bit better. I know a little bit more about them. Um, in Frostpunk, I've got 600, 700 people near the end of the game that I need to care about. I don't know their names anymore at all. Right. I don't know anyone's names and the stakes, the things I'm weighing this decision against is the actual extinction of the human species. That first time you're playing, that's what it feels like. At, at least it did to me where I'm like, yeah, OK, that's fine. We're a fucking crazy religious cult now. But you know what? Humanity lives. So I win. Yeah, I feel like Holly uh, Martin's on the Ferris wheel in the third man, listening to Harry Lyme sort of lay out <laughs> his world. We're like, we're like, Harry Lyme is like, would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offer you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, <laughs> we're well, sitting here like listening to you guys talk. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, and and what's I'll tell you one thing. There's another game that actually has a similar conceit and nails it within a much warmer setting, and it's Tropico, because in Tropico you have similar city builder issues, and you don't have it doesn't have the compelling enemy of the cold. It has traditional city builder uh, boons and issues, but within Tropico, every person, all of the stats you're looking at, whether it's happiness or uh, within the phrasing of uh frostpunk discontentment or hope all of that is not just global modifiers in tropical all that is sourced from individual citizens you can click on one person you can look at their thoughts you can look and see if whether or not they're lazy you can see how, where they work and how that affects the place where they work and uh, you can see their families and their families all have these similar traits if someone is running against you in your country because it has a democracy you can click on that person you can have them arrested by the secret police. You can make sure their family never finds out about them again. And because it's treated satirically, it doesn't have the same weight that Frostpunk gives all of its options. But at the same time, you recognize your city as composed of individuals in a way that I was really surprised that Frostpunk didn't provide. So I'm... I think Frostpunk is interesting because it, it it gestures toward creating that illusion a little bit. Like you can get names for for all your citizens, uh, but and you get an idea of like, oh, here's what the activity they're doing. But you're right; they don't have any of the variation or individuality that you find in uh, a Tropico game or more recently, like Surviving uh, Surviving Mars. Um, right. Now, I don't necessarily mind that because I think a lot of the Tropico games rely on that illusion of meaningful characterization to paper over a lot of really circular and meaningless like gameplay decisions. Uh, that's sort of my mm. that, that's sort of my beef with the uh, you know Heimann approach to to city builders. What what's mm. interesting to me 
is that I was definitely expecting a little more um, individual identity in this game. Like, again, especially coming from this war of mine, which is so deeply personal. Like, this war of mine, every single one of your survivors has, like, a stat sheet, basically. And, like, kind of a little, uh, you know, psychological makeup that you have to take into account. Um, Here, they are just rendered as abstractions. But I guess I kind of liked that the meaning and weight you had you assigned to those individuals in their lives was kind of optional like it depended on on whether or not you personally assigned human life if you didn't see human life as inherent and valuable then yeah oh gosh oh so this is why people think i'm a monster yeah. oh okay yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the truth. Yeah, no, the, your entire review is like they were just numbers on a sheet. Like, not like all these people I let die did not come and individually plead with me, bearing their stat sheets, being like, "Here's here's me. I'm a real person." So you just looked at the numbers and looked at the mouths to mouths to feed and the homes to heat, and you were like, "You gotta go," and you played pretty ruthlessly. Now. I, uh, you know what, I, again, I'm going to tell you how I won my game uh, in, in, a, in a few minutes once we talk about the end game crises that you fail, um, but mm. arguably I was a worse ruler, but somehow more morally forgivable. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, uh, because for me, I definitely like tried to be Mr. Nice Guy, and I really ducked a lot of those hard trade-offs and the game didn't really dock me points for that but people definitely died because i didn't make those trade-offs like uh so something like something that happens to varying degrees in every scenario more people show up there are other survivors out there in this world that need help and in a couple of the scenarios you can get overwhelmed very very quickly with new arrivals to your city seeking shelter not if you yes. don't save them. <laughs> yep, that's definitely one option. If you leave them to freeze in the cold, no problems. Uh, but yeah, so at one point, like I think I had, uh, it's it's in the second scenario. Well, I guess after the first scenario, it's all kind of optional the order you go in. But the sure. um, the workers' colony, um, right? Yeah, you've got you start with a lot of mouths to feed, and then more keep showing up. And the trick of Frostpunk is that. There's a tech tree you go up by researching new technologies at the workshop, and they make a lot of your resource gathering and uh, production more efficient. Uh, so, for instance, like, you know, you can start, you, you, your people start just grabbing coal off the ground out of piles, but you can upgrade, you can build a coal mine and then upgrade that into a really advanced, like, coal production facility that generates tons of coal. Uh, each production right. cycle, but you have to take time and burn a lot of resources to make your way up the tech tree to unlock those options. And the only thing that allows you to sustain a large population is advanced technologies. And if you overwhelm yourself really early with uh, new people, that workforce is not going to be able to be productive enough to compensate 
the added strain on your colony's resources. And so you start entering um, death spirals to varying degrees. And this is very much a game of death spirals. And it comes in a lot of different forms. Um, you know, the, the most obvious one is as you upgrade your generator and research things like workplace heaters and steam hubs, which create like local heating zones uh, further away from the generator, all those things start drastically increasing your rate of coal consumption. And it's very easy uh, while you're busy with other stuff not to note that what was a coal surplus has become a massive deficit. Because the last time you really paid attention to that number, you were like, oh, I've got like 800 coal in the bank. And I'm up to my cap of like 1,000 by the end of the day, each day. And then we only burn like 150 overnight. So I'm good. Like I don't need to worry about this. And you upgrade a bunch of stuff. You get busy with other stuff. And the next thing you know, it's getting dark. And you look, and somehow you're down to like 200 coal. And uh -huh. now you have a choice. Like, you can start having people work all night in the mines, uh, at which point people are more likely to get sick from exhaustion, uh, especially because outlying production buildings are further from the generator. They tend to be colder. So people working shifts there tend to get sick and they need to go to your medical centers. And if your medical centers are, over, are overburdened, there won't be enough care, and people will become gravely sick and enter like palliative care or basically drop out of the workforce or just die. Um, or you can avoid that by turning down the generator or turning off the generator uh, to save some coal. Uh, but then you're sort of asking questions of, okay, who gets to have their home heated overnight? Who, uh, maybe we all don't have heat, uh, which might be fine for people in well-insulated homes, but for people who are still living in the tents I built on the first day, um, they're going to freeze and they're probably going to get sick overnight. Um, and so those things begin spiraling pretty quickly because like a sick workforce can't produce, which means there's fewer people showing up to the mine the next day which means the generator has a harder time ever turning back on or catching up with your increased need. And so that's kind of how this game is driven. And if you get this, this balancing act of resources, workforce, health, generator power, if you get that, if you get any of those pieces wrong in the sort of triangle of resource management, uh, one side breaks and begins pulling your entire economy down with it. Absolutely. And that's – I think that's one of the reasons um, why I think one of the best things in this game is that tech tree because when you open it up, you look at it and every single thing on the tech tree feels fucking vital, right? You're like, oh, I need to, I need to upgrade my research speed because I need to be able to get the rest of this stuff, but – oh, no, you know, we really need to be able to get coal faster, so I need to research this coal production building. Um, and you get pulled into this equivocating game of like, uh, well, you know, I'd really love to find these ways to build hothouses so we can get food faster, but I'm actually afraid that our current, you know, minimum necessary population is going to start, you know, you're going to freeze to death in the meantime. So maybe everybody can just go hungry for a while. And that's when you open up that book of laws and you're like, oh, what if we just 
slip a little sawdust into the food so that uh, everybody stays a little full, right? Yeah, that'll 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 pull us through the hard time. Oh, don't look so shocked. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I, we made soup in our colony. Okay, no sawdust was involved. I draw the line at sawdust. <laughs> the children uh, can't eat sawdust on their lunch breaks in the coal mine. Is that what you're telling me? No, they will have hearty soup, and they will complain. And they'll die of the cold. And that overnight. is why some of them don't come back. Uh, to say something that doesn't immediately make me sound like a monster. Um, Wait, are you wearing a Imperial Stormtrooper shirt? Oh, shit. Okay. This (laughs) is going downhill. Um, I think it's made up of words, too, that equate to fascism in some regard. I need to get rid of this shirt. Uh... What I what I love about Frostpunk is that it it occasionally it occasionally puts you into those situations with the tech tree where you are as you said John just like man everything here feels vital but what I love about the tech tree and sort of the progression the game takes you on is that when you look at the book of laws at the beginning of the game when you look at the tech tree you're like I can do this you see the option for cannibalism in the tech tree, and you're like, and I'm sorry, the Book of Laws, and you're like, okay, I see what you're doing there. I'm just not going to click that. Uh, you look at the tech tree, and you're like, oh, I can get to the end of this by the end of the game. And then you flash forward five hours. Everyone is hungry. I didn't go for cannibalism, but it is an option at some point, apparently. Uh, everyone is hungry. Everyone is cold. You're looking at all the options in the tech tree and suddenly you're wondering how to distribute these things. And you're like, gosh, uh, there's no way I am getting to I'm there's no way I'm spending the last of my wood to get to the next tier of the tech tree when people are going cold tonight. And that's and that's one way in which the humanity of Frostpunk does come through, which I, I love how it operates on a systemic level, because, again, in most city builders, in most uh, even real, real-time strategy games, I had a lot of moments where I was microwing this like a, like a StarCraft match with my thing paused, mm-hmm. just trying to angle things just right yeah, to absolutely. survive. But when I was in that tech tree, I would get – when you're so motivated, you're, it's always like, okay, get to the end of the tech tree, get the best stuff, win. I had moments where I could have advanced the next stage of the tech tree, and I simply just said, I can't do that. People need to eat. Homes need to get built. This wood doesn't... It could get me to the next stage, but then who's going to suffer as a result? So again, in terms of big picture causes and how those causes can make you set aside your own goals as a player and your own mindset, it really is magical because at the end of the tech tree, there was some amazing steampunk stuff. I wanted to see that stuff in action. But compared to just basic things like housing, hot houses, uh, upgraded mines for coal so that people can sleep at night without getting sick, all of the cool toys, their necessity just paled for me. And I didn't expect for that to happen. I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I said I've been making jokes about the bad things you can do throughout the game, but um, I I think I said earlier that I am a soft touch and stuff did work on me. And 
there were a lot where I was like, oh, it would be really cool if we could make some of these giant spidery automatons to do the workout in the cold for us. But I'm going to prioritize warm homes, right? I made those decisions a lot in this game. That's a bad decision, John, and people died for that decision. uh, You know what? I'm going to show you the score sheet for my first game, and people (laughs) did not die for that decision. I'm great (laughs) at these kinds of games. So there. Oh, I... Tell me if y'all hit this point as well. Um, when I, it sounds like a lot of people went the cult option. Uh, when there, there's points at which your society can diverge in certain respects. Uh, some people can choose cult. I chose law and order, and basically turning my state into a police state. Um, and I had a point where I had a ministry of propaganda. I had all these Orwellian, uh, Big Brother esque things in motion but i didn't see the effect of them so like i was told that there were secret informers among my population ratting out their neighbors but i never i clicked on people and i didn't see any more information about them and there was a point at which it said you're going to lose half of your secret informers if you make this narrative choice and i was just like i have never seen anyone send me any reports nothing has crossed my desk thank you and for everyone who argued against the police state, there were just as many people who were just like, I'm happy. And that the more I think about it, maybe Frostpunk isn't so much effective on its axis of hitting you on a personal level for the decisions you make. But it's really effective in terms of making you, putting you in a position where being big brother and seeing approval from some aspects of society encourages you to see the traditional heroes of certain narratives, freedom fighters, uh, folks fighting the man as the villains of your story. It's it's a really good flipping of contextualization if you take all of these moral choices and put them within that light. Um, the one thing that worries me is that many of the ways the game angles itself, particularly its ending montage, which if we can talk about that at some point, i really like to. Its ending montage really graded against me because it clearly doesn't have that sort of self-awareness in mind. Yeah. Uh, I think I had a, f- a fairly similar experience, except so my my divergent point was I decided to go for a religious angle, right? I was like, well, let's build some churches and it'll keep people happy. Let's uh, establish a little charity making hot food so that people feel good about themselves, um, which uh, – it leads to the slippery slope of, okay, now we've established a religious police and we are encouraging heretics to whip themselves in the square every night so that they can repent from their bad deeds. Um, it gets, it gets fairly medieval, fairly fast, uh, on that, on that tree. Um, I, had this point where I was terrified of the in-game crisis and I didn't think we were going to survive. I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it through this. You know, I'm I'm not going to be able to keep these people alive through the long night that's coming. And, uh, there's a final decision on that tech tree. That's like declare yourself God's prophet on earth and, um, your word law, right? Religious law. Uh, and I was terrified of clicking that button because, um, when you click it, it's like a quarter of your people are going to die in the ensuing revolution, right? Like people are going to fight this violently. And uh, the game makes it clear that the people fighting it violently are the people who are actually the true believers. They're the people who think that 
um, the religion is real. They're the people who think that they should be kind to their neighbors um, and are good. And the first time I clicked that, I read that text and I felt I felt awful for all the things I had done. And I was like, no, I'm not going to enact this law right now. I'm not going to do it. Um, I pushed off mine for as long as possible. Yeah. And I felt very bad because that was the point where the game sort of did effectively confront me and say, hey, look, you're, you're the villain in this story. Just just so you know, you're the bad person. Um, but but, your but does it because the text it gives you for like um, for, for for the law and order tree, it was declare it a complete police state, make it uh, turn the hope bar. It will never go down because it turns into obedience. They don't have need of hope anymore. So many people would be killed in the revolution. But after you click it, it gives you all of this text, which in a traditional game would be like, huzzah, you have ascended, you have brought freedom to your people but it's it's all used to make you feel good about establishing a police state and then later on they try to make you feel bad about it it felt like a tonal whiplash that's really interesting Uh, it felt consistent with the religious tree the religious tree when you click that button that text is like the last you know the people are begging you this is not what our faith is about it's not about imposing our will on our our brothers and sisters it's about loving them um so it, it did it sort of you know points out like hey you're you're you've done a bad thing you've perverted something that was good and keeping people alive in a positive way into a bad thing that's interesting um, that sounds like the yeah the law and order tree didn't give that to me at all gosh the law and order tree is much more like seduction by fascism uh like creeping yes, fascism it and is. it sounds like the religious tree is much more like oh you've like used religion and now you're just nakedly exploiting it but like there was a yep. core of decency here. Uh, I never did go full fascist because like on the tech trait, like there are warning signs that things are going off the rails before that. Like for instance, uh, when I started guard patrols, for instance, like for whatever reason, people were like, yeah, I like having cops wandering my neighborhood, which like, okay, sure. Uh, but like, after I've been doing that for a little while, you start having people complain about, like, the way your cops are behaving. Uh, there's one where, like, a woman feels she's being, like, sexually harassed by police in her neighborhood. Um, oh, dear. I had that one, too. Yeah. And you can keep going in that direction. Like, you can build a prison to deal with, um, like, you know, what, where you actually put the criminals you catch. Uh, but then you can also round people up and put them in the prison and re-educate them as long as they're in the prison. And I'm like, at that point I'm looking at these choices and I'm like, that doesn't quite seem like what was inbounds at the start. And then at the final decisions, I got as far as building a propaganda ministry Uh, and the propaganda ministry, interestingly enough, it's like, it's going to raise discontent, but it's also going to create a steady, like, basic level of hope that you are not going to fall below. I think, I think that's how it works. So like it, it turns hope into obedience. Cause it says you don't need hope anymore. No, 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 no. It was still hope. Like the final okay, decision. Really? Yeah. So after the propaganda mystery, there's another decision in that tree. Now in that tree, I don't know if you noticed, but like the early decisions in the UI are just neutral. They look like any other decision, at least in the fascism tree. The last decisions begin, like, when you mouse over them, having, like, a red-orange glow around them as you begin moving into fascism. And the final choice is, like, Ah, burning red. 
So the final choice that was reigned in fire and thorns, was that bad? Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah that okay. was, I think that, that was, was bad. That was a bad choice. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think this is really interesting because in, in the religious tree, they're surrounded by uh, sort of gold, gilding and illumination. They sort of look mm. fancier and fancier as you sort of establish hierarchies and uh, like a you, you establish a group called the Faith Keepers. And I think this must be similar to oh, your I sort of secret jam. informants. Um, yeah, they're, they're totally great people. Um, but it it gives you sort of a tracker over on the left side of the screen. It's like this is the this is a number. This is the number of, of people in your settlement who have sworn into the Brotherhood of the Faith Keepers. Whoa, and are, that's um, totally you do not get anything and are like willing that to report on their neighbors in the fascist. Yeah. Tree. OK, so cult. Thing, I feel like I would have had listening to this. It sounds like I would have had a substantially. I was looking for empathetic choices on large scale. Fa- seduction by fascism route doesn't do that. It seems like the cult one though does. And when you do stray into the darkness, it makes it clear that that is a clear deviation from the light in a way that the other tree just does not. And that is a really weird decision in terms of what's not getting mirrored here well that's you know i'm i'm loath to dive into cultural criticism but um i mean these developers are from a part of the world that has has seen much more of that uh in its recent cultural history than we have right well and i would say Um, there's always been an element of this was a this was a criticism of this war of mine and certainly it's i think it's one i share but there was a sort of uh i don't know conservatism reactionary bent to this war of mine like the way it presents survival scenarios as being these uh hobbesian like survival like war of all man against all man uh type type scenario where it's very hard to uh trust in people's good intentions that most people will stab you in the back and and, and try to rob from you in this war of mine uh when there's a lot of evidence that's just not how people are wired uh, really, like in in times of crisis, that like that's not exactly like the, this war of mine. A lot of it was inspired by a slightly questionably sourced accounting of what life was like during the siege of Sarajevo. Um, so there, there's an element of that as well. But I think it's super fascinating that I, I assumed these things were just mirrored, and it sounds like it's interesting to me that the religious track is presented as like. It's what it says on the label that it's good right until the end, and you poison it by declaring yourself a cult leader. But like the fascism one is just a step by step. This is a useful thing today. It will help me. And then the final step is like you know fuck it, like just be dictator. And that one is a clear like, oh we've gone this far, and things have become a bit dystopian. But this is the final step where it's irretrievable. And I stopped short of that one. Right. But it's a very different progression. It does seem, yeah. it, it feels that way to me. Um, there, I mean, there are, there are genuinely very positive things you can do in that religious tree. Like you can build little soup kitchens nearby to uh, working workplaces so that people are getting served a hot meal during the day, right. By some, by some priests uh, and some nuns, you can build um, uh, little hospices, right. To keep care of the, the wounded or the sick or the dying, um, where they're they're tended by instead of skilled medical professionals by by priests or by monks or nuns or what have you. Um, I think w- there there are also some very bad decisions in that tree. Like there are stuff that's clearly bad, right? Like you can encourage people to do public penance, and then you can also 
take that a step for, for, for farther and you can force people to do public penance if they've committed a crime or have offended their neighbors. Like, you can make them go whip themselves in the square. Um, hmm. But, but uh, it always seemed to me that this, the sort of the fascism, the order tree, has much less to, rec- to truly recommend it, right? Oh, I, well, hmm. I mean, people really I, I, like again, cops in this game. I, I I think this, unlike this War of Mind, which went to such pains to put you, even if it had, there were some readings of it that weren't so great, it put, took such pains to put you within the mindset of its world and within certainly the mindset of its people that Frostpunk just expects you to bring in. And if, and because it, so much of it is brought in from your side, it's so easy to lose that within the context of learning the way the game should quote unquote be played. Because like, for instance, uh, if you have a worldview that says, okay, people have inherent value because they're individual human beings with lives and thoughts and personalities. And, and suddenly you're given a situation that takes away those things that you feel are uh, essential to inherent human value like I experienced, suddenly a whole lot of the morality of your choices, you're just like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to be a dictator now because the very thing that your value system relies on is not present for you to make those value oriented choices within the simulacrum of the game. Right. And my, and my attitude is like, you have to bring that with you into this game. Like that for me was how I how I was doing it, where I was like, no, I'm just going to play this game as if all these people are human and have value in their inherent humanity, and I'm going to resist the game's systemic portrayal of the situation, which is basically pure numbers. You have X number of hands able to do work. They consume this amount of resources keeping them alive. Do the math. And I really resisted that. And I was like, no, we are going to preserve as much life as possible. Now, um, here's the thing. Now, this is the main spoiler, I guess. There's an endgame crisis um, that that you hit. Like, a storm is coming. And it's actually really cool because even before the game reveals this is happening, there is an overworld map where you send scouts out onto the map, and there's some good world building done through that, where scouts wander the um, wasteland outside the city and visit, like, points of interest. And Did you find the dictatorship run by Tesla? I, well, I found the remains of it, but it had, like, fallen into... I never got into the city. Did you get into the city? I got really far into the city and discovering, like, how that society fell apart. There's some really neat Shit. steampunk storytelling going on. Yeah. How did, so this is, yeah, there's some pretty cool stuff. I never got into the city, and this was another beef I had. Every time I hit those decision points in the overworld, the same thing happened. Like, for instance, early in the game, you encounter a group of survivor, survivors hiding in a cave from some polar bears. And you can either intervene to help them or let, or let the polar bears just eat them. And I was always like, well, let's see if I can save them. And I must have hit that decision like four or five times. And every time my scouts got eaten by bears. And like, yes, we saved the survivors, but every single time. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure this is actually random. Because every time I do this, the scouts die. That's the trade-off. Every time I did it, 
I started to feel that the game was rigged in the opposite direction because every time I hit this decision point, like to talk people down or to interview with bears, my scouts didn't die. Every single moral choice where I could do the good thing and I did the good thing succeeded. What? And I was just like, oh, so the game must be just giving you false choices to so you so it can later on criticize you being like, ah, out of fear, you made those choices, but you didn't do the empathetic no, thing. I was convinced that like wow. it was just a hard like this is the choice. You can either save the people and get eaten by bears or let the bears eat them and keep your scouts. That to me was the choice. Wow. I did not realize. Yeah, when I saved I, like, people from bears, all my scouts lived. What? Okay, so what happened, so when you got to the Tesla city, and, okay, yeah. quick thing, so this is where the game does get really steampunk. Uh, there are giant automatons that sort of wander around, and they're giant, like, spider things that go, and they can work 24-7 in production buildings. They're really useful if, you, if you've got them. What, as long as you keep them topped up with coal, <laughs> and if you're running out of yes. coal, and you have them running a coal mine, that can get circular and bad very quickly. Yeah, like those things, uh, the, the automatons, if you come to depend on them and you get the call calculations wrong, uh, they basically sealed your doom. Uh, so there is, there <laughs> is an element of, of that as well. Uh, but the other thing is, all of those things, and you can build more through the factory, which does advanced production uh, processes like creating more automatons or uh, creating prostheses uh, for people who lost limbs to frost... But I almost said to Frostpunk. Uh, <laughs> Doctor, what's wrong with They me? did lose it to Frostpunk. You're not wrong. Uh, so you can build prostheses. But then the other thing, this is where you have to be really careful. Your most advanced buildings require steam cores, uh, which are the things that power automatons. And you only get a handful of those uh, in most of the scenarios. The exception is... Uh, the scientist survival mission where basically you have a very small workforce of engineers and then you just get to produce a crap ton of automatons like uh, steam cores like basically rain from the heavens uh, on your colony so yes that's kind of the trade-off but in the backdrop of this world is yes with the steam age technology we have created giant robots that do sophisticated labor for us um, yeah, we use Zeppelins a lot for no good reason. And of course, Nikola Tesla is alive in this world and built a city with a snow zapping machine. That was basically the plan, but I never got into the city. He's a fascist a-hole who drives his colony into total disarray. Uh, and if you can actually establish an outpost there that sends back one steam core a day. Whoa. Yes, you can. It's the, it's sort of the like super awesome overpowered outpost. Um, I personally never, I never ended up using it. Right. Like I found out about it post playing the game. Uh, I had the same reaction that Rob did just now. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that changes everything. Cause the automatons are so powerful. Like they do not get tired. They just work in the production buildings all the time. So like if you have two advanced coal mines being serviced by two automatons, you basically don't have to worry about coal for the rest of the game. Like it's close to it. Like you might still have to economize in some places uh, because your coal consumption keeps going up as the temperature 
gets colder and like day by day you have cold snaps that lower the temperature in these ticks like one tick two ticks and all your generator does is warm things uh to start two ticks above the temperature uh so as it gets super 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 cold things even really close to the generator still don't stay livable unless you've upgraded your generator um but yeah, so the end game is all about these escalating costs. Um, but yeah, the automatons right. and the steam cores are incredibly powerful. Uh, and you do things like build a hothouse that produces uh, food like 24-7. And you don't have to send like huge hunting teams out uh, to deal with it. So the steam cores are powerful. But where I was going with all this is you go into the overworld map. And as the game goes on in your scout's journey through the world, you start to notice that the edge of the overworld map appears to have, like, a giant storm on the perimeter. And for a long time, it's, like, the distance, and you're like, okay, yeah, it's, like, you know, it's the show that the world is totally hosed outside of this. But after a while, you're like, that kind of looks like it's getting closer. Like, that looks like a wall (laughs) of ice is moving in. Uh, And then toward the end of the game, it reveals that, yep, here comes the real snow apocalypse. All of this has been a warm-up for the cold snap to end all cold snaps. And... (laughs) <laughs> yes uh, you and uh so you got the it's like three ticks four ticks of like temperature drop and it's yeah. unrelenting it shuts down certain types of production entirely no matter what and it lasts for like 20 days so you just have to like it's a siege basically and yep. can you survive it have you banked enough to survive what's coming and that's the real test the game's throwing at you like you, you've been thinking this entire time, ah, it's about balancing these daily resources and blah, 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 and that challenge is escalating. But actually, you have a stockpile check approaching at the end of the game, and that's actually what you're building towards. And a tech check, too, right? Like, if you haven't gotten the generator upgraded enough and built enough uh, outlying steam hubs, you are going to freeze to death. Yeah. Uh, another a big thing that really made this moment effective for me is that I didn't know you could rotate the uh, overworld map. So <laughs> well, I did, I didn't when when people when the scientists came and said, "Hey, there's a storm a coming," suddenly for it was as if for the first time the map rotated, and I was like, "Oh man, that's here! What?" And I I, I had this thing of utter shock as. Just, yeah, it was a very simple interaction. This little overworld map that you can send your scouts along and get into interactive fiction, narrative choices. Suddenly, it just slowly turned around and faced the most terrifying sight that you could get in a game like this. And it was, again, one of the moments where it really hit me on a cinematic and systemic level that, one, this is cool, and two, I'm going to die. It's so cool because it rolls across the map and starts shutting down points of interest. So, like, if your scout teams get caught in that, they are dead. And so there's there's element of, like, you've got your teams out there on the map and you're like, can I get to that final? Like, because there's so much good – there's good stuff at all these points of interest. Like, there's all, it's always worth checking these things out. Um, and the, the last ones you get, the ones that are furthest from your colony – tend to have like some really valuable tech or resources uh, located with them. And so as that storm is rolling in, you're really white knuckling it because you're thinking like, 
I think I can make this. Like, I think, I think they can get to that dreadnought and salvage the steam core and get home because you travel twice as fast through known routes. So like once they've blazed the trail through the snow, they follow their own footsteps back and they're faster. So you're like, I think I can do it. And maybe you're right, but maybe you're not. And the storm like claims them. And, and the game is counting down like, you know, in three days, you need to have battened down all hatches. Like outposts are shut down. Scouting teams have been disbanded and everyone is like locked in. Uh, otherwise, they're lost. Yep. Yeah, and, and it's, that, uh, and, it's a spooky experience. And that was actually where I made the decision that turned me full monster. It was, oh gosh, you need to have, uh, for my colony, it was like 400 strong. And they said, you need to have enough for everybody to eat for a week. So you need, eh, give or take, so many thousand. And I just looked at that number, and I looked at how many rations I had in store. And how many rations I had in store was zero at the yep. time. And I said, okay, roughly half of these people are going to die. And that's exactly what happened. I, I started that phase with, unbeknownst to me, the whole real challenge uh, came in. I started it with 400-odd people. I uh, ended it with 198. Wow. And that was a really, really strange experience because I'm, I'm dealing with the individual issues, but in my head, I'm running a tally of how many of these people can make it to the end of this period of time. Uh, and at that point, it effectively became, how can I manage people being sort of okay with me as I ensure that most of their loved ones die. Okay. So, and this is where I, I strongly recommend, and I, I should have actually maybe framed this at the start because it makes a lot of sense for why we're treating Zolivir like we're slightly afraid of him. Uh, but his Rock Over Shotgun <laughs> review is really good, uh, but it is also about that choice. The entire thing hinges on that really calculated decision at the end to basically sacrifice half the colonies that half can live. Um, which is, and, and then of course, what's really chilling about it is that in, in the text, at least you felt nothing doing that, uh, which is, is kind of amazing to me because for me, where this game ended, I had about 600 people living in my colony uh, as like, oh, wow. I had taken yeah, that's about how many I everybody. Had. I had taken everybody in. I had. Oh, so yeah. when yeah. when they said they said you can send out scouts to save out the last survivors, you saved the last survivors. I did. I did too. I panicked. Yeah. I panicked and I diverted all my scouts from what they were doing to go and try and save those people. So I I got some really nice house blueprints. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that that's where that's where my scouts went. I uh, yeah. So I sur- I saved a ton of people. I had about six hundred people as that storm rolled in. And for me, there were two major crises uh, that I had not really handled. One is, I might have hit the coal stockpile, but I had, yes, but there was, so there was a first culling. I should be clear. And it wasn't an intentional culling. Before the endgame crisis hit, I got my coal math wrong. And long story short, da 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 uh, the generator kept fluctuating on and off for a period of like three days. 
And I dug myself out it's of that. It's not great when it's negative 70 Celsius. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people got sick. Um, and, and, and a decent number died. Uh, but I did manage to solve the problem by unlocking the late game coal technologies. I was basically done building most buildings at that point. So I just started converting all my wood into charcoal. Um, so I'd, I think, largely solved the coal problem. Um, but that had come at the cost of preparing a lot of the food, uh, problem that like I, I had a good subsistence food economy going as the end game crisis hit, but I didn't really have the stockpile I needed for all those people. And so the storm hits and you haven't completed your objectives. Like the things it says you need to have done before the storm hits. I didn't quite manage to do that. Like some scouts didn't make it back. I didn't have enough food. And so of the like 578 people that were in the colonies, the storm hit over the next, like, you know, 10, 20 days, whatever it was, however long the storm lasts, I watched that number just dwindle and I didn't make a decision to kill anyone. Like I had done everything. I had been as humane as could be like, there was the prison. Sure. But like, I didn't go full fascist. Like I stopped myself short of that. And I was just trying to run the best sanctuary I could. And so without ever really making a choice to cause anyone to die, over the course of that final storm, I watched that number tick down by a few at the start. And then in the waning days of that storm, it was like 30, 40 people a day just dropping. And... When the storm broke, I think I was down to around, like, 230 people. Uh, Like, half the colony perished in the final storm uh, from a variety of, like, people got sick and died in their workplaces. Um, I'd upgraded most of the homes, but I think to save the last of my coal, I had to turn down some of my heating. Uh, And so... Homes didn't quite fall to like fatal levels, but like again, people started getting sick in their homes and uh, started dying. So by the end, starvation, exposure, all these things, about half my colony died. And to me, I was like, well, I just, I screwed this up royally. Like, I, like, my big, soft, stupid heart got a bunch of people killed where maybe if I'd put those kids to work, all this stuff, Maybe this would have been avoided, but there's end game. It doesn't. It doesn't help. The kids are very inefficient. (laughs) (laughs) But the the end game text then sort of says, well, here's what you did. And you see like a time lapse picture of like how your city unfolded. And for me, I got the we avoided the temptations of fascism message. Uh, We made compromises, but we didn't lose our way of life. And we adapted to survive in this harsh land. And we kept hold of who we are. And I was like, oh, I think that's the good ending. Never mind the overflowing cemetery at the edge of my settlement. I had not gone full fascist. And most people, like, not most, a lot of people lived. And the game was like, well done. Like, you didn't. You didn't do the things that we were worried you were going to do. And that was the message I got. I am curious what y'all got 
for your wins having made different choices? I, I think this is, I have to jump in because uh, when I saw the storm coming, Rob, where you didn't click that last button, where you didn't say, <laughs> I am your new God, I did, right? Like, I saw that storm coming and I was like, I need how much food? Okay, let's get to work. And I clicked those emergency shift buttons every time they were available, right? And I clicked those buttons to send priests door to door and keep people happy every single day. And as we got how, closer, how did you manage the discontentment? Well, that's the thing, right? So, like, the religious tree is is sort of driven all around um, increasing hope rather than lowering discontentment. Um, mm. And so it has a couple things for for lowering discontent, but I had done pretty well overall. My discontent was at nothing as I went into the beginning of that in-game crisis. Um, but the problem was that hope started to fall really rapidly as it seems like you're not going to survive, right? It's everyone's panicking as that storm comes. Um, and my hope started to sort of spiral lower and lower. And at that point, I was like, all right, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, I have to keep clicking these buttons if all these people are going to live. And so I was like, I am your new God, right? Like God says we have to do this. So we're fucking doing it. Um, and I clicked that button, right? A cut like two days before the storm hits. I was like, I have to do it if we're going to live. Um, and we did, right? I came out of that storm with 600 something people alive because Why? I was Whoa. willing to make that decision. 600 people? And afterwards... I felt fucking awesome. I was like, we're going to rebuild human society. Look, we're not extinct. We lived. We win. Right? What was the end game test? And then, yeah. and then the end game thing is like, you're a fucking monster. <laughs> You've destroyed humanity. And I was like, no, I didn't. I saved us. We Sorry, lived, right? Like, the cost I don't, has I don't to be care. Paid. Yeah, like, I paid, the, I paid the fucking ferryman and we lived. Um, and then, and then I loaded back into the main menu and I saw that there's two alternate scenarios. So it's kind of clear that there are other survivors and my entire concept of how the world was going to go wasn't right. And I felt sort of cheated. Hmm. And, and, I, and I'll buy into that cheated thing because that was definitely how I felt with my narrative. Because when I come into a game like this, I want it to... Show me the space for I, I'm looking for empathy. I'm looking for it to show me the space for empathy. That I want to make choices based upon the empathy. If I make compromises because that space for empathy has been built, I want to feel them. And many times I do. Uh, this war of mine, I couldn't play more than a couple of hours of it. Uh, when there are moral choices in games, I typically choose really good paths. Um, I'm not going to give a list of references that I'm not a cannibal slash terrible person, but I will provide them upon request. And suddenly, suddenly I'm given this game and I've been playing it for five hours. And I'm not good at this type of game. Uh, every single day is a white knuckle struggle. And every single day is a, is a struggle to also just like, not just consider the job done and just to write the review because the deadline was coming up soon. And I was like, okay, I'm basically going to die. Why? Why prolong this? But I kept going and I did get to the por portion with order and law. And I did get to the portion where you can have executions in the public square. And when the final situation, when the final endgame crises hit me, 
I was just done in terms of empathy. I had been looking for the space. The space was not there. And suddenly the, and, and the game was like, okay, well, now you, you thought you were barely getting by. Now you're screwed. And I did essentially everything I could. I was like, okay, if ev- I want as many people to live as possible, there's a lot of people who aren't going to come out of this. And I ran those guard shifts and I rounded up all the prisoners as often as I could to keep down discontentment. And I had pub, I had executions in that square every day and people loved it. The kids were overjoyed because the guy was getting boiled by steam and who wouldn't be? It's a, it's a spectacle. <laughs> Sounds awesome. <laughs> but I came through, as you, as you said, John, I came through the other end of it, having made these choices based off of the perception the game gave me of interchangeable people with randomized faces, randomized names, who occasionally, when they popped up in little talking head sections to talk about a new law, I think I saw some that were like the same person would speak for and then against a thing because of how it was handled. It was it was strange, but I, I came through it all. I... Human civilization survived. And then the game told me, look at what you've done. And I said, do you see what the time lapse is depicting? It's showing people. And they're still fucking walking around because of me. Yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that the game had put me in a space where it had removed the inherent value of humanity and then attempted to bring that back, I was like, no. You don't get to bring that back. This is this humanity that the design of the game itself discarded. You can't expect me to throw it away in line with the philosophies you have described and then to pull it back. I came out of it uh, not just resistant, but stubborn. I came out of it saying, you know what? I am a hero. (laughs) And furthermore... Absolutely. I will provide references for all, from all 200 people in my colony who survived. Long live the great leader. It is me. Yes. I, uh, I felt the same, except I said, you know, praise God and also myself. Here's the thing. You have to buy it, right? So, John, like, it's not praise God and also myself. You've kind of made yourself God. You got to own that, <laughs> right? Own the mantle. <laughs> This is, uh, I mean, I'm kind of riveted listening to you both talk about your reactions to this because to me, like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, my God, this game really succeeded in ways I was not expecting because, so to me, what separates this from a game like, for instance, Spec Ops The Line, where it's, Super linear. You don't actually have any choices. If the game is going to continue on or you're going to stop playing it, you have to drop the white phosphorus on the women and children huddled in Dubai. You have to do it. And then at the end, the game is going to be like, you're disgusting. You're a monster for doing this. But like, there was never any choice. Here, the choice is there all along. It's just... You kind of determine whether or not you're going to feel like there's any consequences or meaning to those choices. Like, if you go full 
death of one man is a tragedy, death of a million is a statistic. Like, the game isn't going to stop you until the end. The game is going to be like, well, okay, but let's pull this back and look at the choices you made. I don't know. For me, this seems successful. But what really is the choice if the choice you have is do the thing or fail? Because in the, ter- in the, in the, in the context of failure, that's seven hours of real-world time you spent attempting to survive and you can be the good guy and you can get the failure condition and you can take that punch and be, be like, okay, at least I did the right thing. But who wins? Who really wins when the people that you're presented with to protect, to ostensibly, uh, uh, to, to ostensibly care for are so often dehumanized by the game's design? When, when, you, when you hit even situations like with the interactive fiction, uh, portions and it says a woman is complaining about police harassment. It's not saying Joyce Aberdeen in the sixth district. It just says a woman. It's completely decontextualized and and within that uh, environment, it is very hard to care as a player. Yeah, to a certain to a certain degree, I think you're absolutely right in calling that that out as a design weakness. I consider the linearity of Spec Ops Align equivalent to the the possibility of failure within this game because they're, they're, it's essentially the same. It's essentially the same argument. If you felt so bad, if you wanted to make the right quote unquote choice, you should have stopped playing, and that's I think a cop out. Well, is that true though? Because we all succeeded, right? Doing different things. We all made it through the crisis. Yeah. Rob made it through, even though he didn't click the fascism button. I admire Rob greatly for that fact. I mean, like, uh, it, but to me, it's like, this, I, I think that's actually kind of cool is that we all did things that we felt were forced upon us. Like, we, but we all ended up making different choices when we were, when our, when our feet were held to the fire. And what's interesting is we all got through it in these different routes, but then the game may draw some conclusions about how we did. Now, is there kind of a shitty bait and switch aspect to this of like, like for instance, the game doesn't seem to have any, the game doesn't seem to have any sense of proportion. Like 600 people survived in John's colony. That is yeah, meaningful to me. That is like, Whatever it took, you saved literally everybody. That is 600 people who survived this apocalypse. I had 300 of those people die because I didn't make hard, like I, I avoided a lot of like morally gray choices. And 300 people basically died through neglect and incompetence and under resourcing. Like it was well meaning neglect and incompetence, but like the game at the end says, well, good job, Rob. You're not a monster. And you preserve yes, what it is. and yet Rob was called the hero. I say as I twirl my but mustache. No, but I think that like maybe that is an element that is meaningfully missing here. Is that it's saying okay, these are moral choices, but then it divorces those moral choices from many of their material effects. Like six hundred people versus two hundred seventy starved people who survived the storm. That is a meaningfully different outcome. It's also separated from the uh, uh, from the montage how it depicts those choices is also very uh, linear in its presentation, mm-hmm. which is perhaps part of what irritated me. Cause like 
when I made the choice to draft children, it was like just because I didn't really it was, believe it or not, the least offensive thing on my tech tree at the time. Uh, and we, but yet when the game was talking about like the growth of my civilization, it didn't bring, put that in sort of like one of my late stage uh, fall of my society's moral uh, bases sort of things. It raised it like right at the front uh, alongside a bunch of other early game choices I had made. So it was like there was no recognition that, oh, you did that later or you did this first. It was just, oh, you did the thing. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I, no, I see what you're what you're getting at now. There's it, no scale. There's no uh, none of these choices are set against their exact scenario, the situation you made them in. And again, because so much of uh, this stuff is is situational in this war of mine, because it's essentially a very close in view uh, and you prioritize your survival uh, above another's, it feels like an uh, an inherently selfish act. When you look at that end game uh, list of things and it's explicitly telling you that, uh, whereas it force you to bring in implicit morality, it, it's also quite jarring. If it had instead presented like a list of options and it was just like, here's the growth of your civilization, and then just starts ticking down sort of like a, a timeline, the, the moral decay of your thing, if it had been an implicit or just a presentation uh, of your civilization's morality, I might have reacted to it very differently. But as it was, I felt like the game had presented me with... It's, it's an eternal Ludo dis, a narrative dissonance problem. It presented me with a win condition and then told me that I had failed on a subjective bias. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. Well, I like, I think, I don't know, like, like for me, that's a decent place to leave things. Like, this is what the game is building towards, and that those are its politics that it kind of reveals at the end. Um, and this right. is this is why we sort of front loaded that spoiler discussion. Like, like really should have bailed out a long time ago. So, like, <laughs> if you came this far, it's a little too late to be like, hey, there, there were spoilers. Uh, but this is the thing. Like, once that in-game crisis hits, the context and meaning and all the choices you made completely changes and i think where this game really succeeds and and what makes for these really interesting stories and reactions we had is that all of us kind of stumbled blindly into these choices and trade-offs and we made them uncertain of what was going to come like when that storm hits you're not like is it ever going to end uh it it seems totally hopeless um when i really like but if you know all this going in, and you know that's how the game is like grading you, basically at the end, uh, did you survive without you know committing fascism or uh, you know religion like or theocracy? Uh, then you know, good on you, no matter the cost. Once you know that that's what the game is playing, uh, that linearity makes its strategic aspect a little thinner. Uh, in some ways, uh, like for me, I enjoyed, there are two things I really enjoyed, uh, going naively through the scenarios and just sort of surviving them as best I can. And then trying them all again, like a second time to see if I could do a little bit better and sort of improve my results. Right. But 
beyond that, I don't feel a lot of excitement in the idea of returning to the game. Like for me, Frostpunk is like the book is kind of closed there. Like unless I want to sort of relive this experience and revisit it, I've kind of solved Frostpunk. I know the story it's telling and I know the moral of that story. And knowing all that, the city builder kind of ceases to be interesting to me. Now, that process took, like, I put a decent amount of time into this game. Like, that was a good run I had with this game. Uh, it was evocative and, and affecting and, and troubling in some places. Uh, but, like, if you're looking at this to be, like, you know, post-apocalyptic city skylines or something, it's just not. It's not a real city. It's a, it's, it's a city-building narrative. It's a survival narrative, right? but it's not an open-ended survival game. Very true. Absolutely agree. And, you know, I think there's place for that. When I was done with this game, I felt sort of like hollowed and I was unsure how to feel immediately upon upon victory. Um, other than like sort of fuck you game, I, I did a great job. I wasn't evil. Um, but it did make me think about the kinds of things I want to think about. Um, when I'm playing a game with complicated and, and tough choices in it. And I did think about the themes of the game. And in that way, overall, even though it's sort of vaguely cloaked in this city builder that I enjoyed interacting with, I mean, I had fun. I like to watch numbers go up and fill meters, right? Like as a base gamer. Um, at the end of it, I was happy I'd played the game. And I, d- I do recommend it to people. I thought it was good. Frostpunk is, an, is a game I immediately, I wrote the review for it, and it's very rare, but right after I wrote that review, I immediately wanted to continue talking to people about it, about all the cool things inside of it. It's genuinely one of the most in- interesting systemic game experiences I've had in a very long time, even if the uh, the narrative and moral aspects did end up feeling uh, falling very flat for me because of their lack of integration with the personal uh, that said, the hearing now all of the different ways this could have gone and um, all of the, the ways it affected the people playing it, it has also, it's affected the way I see the game positively because mm-hmm. it's like, when I was on that journey, I felt utterly alone, like everything was on me. And it's very rare that a game, especially in the modern age of like uh, let's plays and even things like MMOs where you are the chosen hero get in line behind the other chosen heroes. It's very rare for me to feel like utterly alone and uh, against this uh, totally bought into this single experience and this single worldview with this uh, and the survival of a world. And, And with that said, as a game, I'd recommend Frostpunk entirely as a moral exploration I'd say it's far more interesting for the things that you can, for the ways you can discuss it, than uh, the way it actually presents those topics. And uh, yeah, I, I did feel nothing. I felt nothing. The children deserved it. Work harder if you want to live. Uh, all right, I think we will. Uh, we will leave it there. Um, that, that will do it for this week. We'll be back back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and his host on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, Zolivir, where can uh, people find you online uh, and where can people find your latest or upcoming work? Uh, you can find me 
I use Twitter frequently, most often for puns, but sometimes for constructive uses. At uh, at W R I T Rit Nelson on Twitter. I also do a podcast about sauces and condiments uh, called "We Make Sweet Tender Love to Sauce," and and that's taken up an unreasonable amount of my time recently. So, <laughs> <laughs> alongside game development and writing about games, that that's that's currently where I am. And uh, thank you so much for having me on today. This was uh, absolutely great uh, opportunity to discuss a game that I have very complicated feelings for, but care about very much. Uh, and John, real quick. Uh, so you've sort of taken up the tabletop gaming beat over at PCG. Yes, I have. Yeah. If you go to pcgamer.com slash board dash games, uh, you can check out that coverage. It's sort of a 50, 50 mix of what board game developers are doing digitally. The kind of things you can play on steam that are, board games that came out in the last couple of years or even 20 years ago that are great games that uh, have never been available digitally before. And uh, your, your bog standard cardboard and plastic monstrosities. Congrats on that, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a, it's a great beat. I'm really excited about it. All right. And through the head is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash three MA. We'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ahead until then. For John, for Zolivier, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight and stay frosty. So, so oh, sorry. No. That <laughs> was terrible. I, I hope you keep that in. Keep it in.